If you have a Bible, take it and find 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 16. If you don't know me, I am Keith Jr. or KJ or Keith the Lesser here. You, you've enjoyed the, the ministry of Keith the Greater for the past five years. We've been away for the past five years in Europe. Uh, if you're new to Alberta, uh, you, you may not know us. Uh, we've been in England for three years, helping a new church get started in the north of England in a small town called Burbridge, North Yorkshire. Uh, about 3,500 people, no evangelical church for uh, about 150 square miles around. And uh, praise the Lord, today there's about 100 people gathering every Sunday uh, to worship him in Burbridge in North Yorkshire. And for the past two years, we've been in a very different area. We've been in the biggest urban area in Europe, in Paris, uh, about 13 million people or people who come from countries who speak more English than they do French. And we've been planting English-speaking international Baptist churches there in Paris. Uh, we have a mother church and have planted the first church into the city and, and feel like the Lord's really blessing and feeling a lot of momentum behind that work right now. Thank you so much for your prayers and support for us over these past five years. It has been amazing how much this church has loved us and how we've felt that from afar. Uh, if you want to keep up with us, pray for us. We release a, a monthly update through plantparis.com. You can find out how to do that. I'm not going to say any more about Paris. That's all you're going to get right there. Uh, let me read our passage for us, and then uh, we will jump in and, and pray as we open God's word together. First uh, Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of the, of the Lord. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear from your word this morning, may our hearts be good soil for your word to be planted in and to spring forth in, in bearing fruit. Uh, Lord, forbid that we would have hardened hearts this morning. May you soften us by the power of your spirit, by the proclamation of your word, that we might be a fruitful people and that this might be the fruit, 
that our hearts would be changed into your heart. Your holiness we would share because we share in your character by believing in the good news of your son. Lord, we pray that you would work this in this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, do you like a good mystery? Do you like a good mystery? Do you enjoy a good detective story where there is the slow buildup of clues and theories until a big final reveal? Do you like that kind of story? If you do, you're not alone because Keith and Teresa Pugh love that kind of story. Uh, we, we came home for Christmas and they have this thing on their TV now called Brit Box. I don't know anything about it except that it shows all of these cozy English murder mysteries. Uh, that may be all it shows for all I know because that's what they watch. Every TV in their house also has the subtitles permanently on because they love these shows and it's not that they can't hear but they can't understand what the people are saying. <laughs> they love it, but they can't quite understand what people are saying all the time. They love the mysteries. And if that's you, you, you stand with them as well. And TV networks out there bank on the fact that the pews are not alone, that you're not alone if you love mysteries. Uh, if you were to completely eliminate shows that told these kind of stories, progressive uh, unveiling mysteries, some networks would literally have no programming left, would they? I'm looking at you, CBS, with your procedural dramas, right? Procedural dramas with the unraveling mysteries are cl- quite literally all that some TV networks have to offer. These networks rely on the human appetite for mystery, the satisfaction of the gradual reveal, our enjoyment in seeing a Sherlock Holmes or a Mrs. Marple, put all the pieces together for us. It would seem that there is a natural appetite in the human heart for mysteries and for their revealing. But why? Why? Is it just the thrill of putting all the pieces together? Or is there something even deeper at work? Is there something in the way God designed us? Are we designed to search for meaning? Has God intentionally made us to hunger for something mysterious? For the mysterious. Were we made to hunger for a particular mystery for which all other mysteries were merely inferior copies? A human attempt to scratch a God-given itch. Do you know, the Bible describes the good news about Jesus as a mystery, a mystery that God himself authored in the beginning, and he is now revealing to the world. In our passage today in 1 Peter, Peter says that God began revealing this mystery long ago to the prophets. God revealed it to them but it wasn't his intention in revealing for them to solve this mystery. The prophets weren't meant to be like Sherlock Holmes at the end of the novel, coming in, wrapping everything up. Here's here's how everything fits together, tying it up with a big bow. Think of the prophets more like Sherlock at the beginning of the story, getting the first clues 
often being the first to discover that there is a mystery here worth investigating after all. I mean, you can see it quick. Elisha, the game's afoot. You can picture Elijah saying that, right? Let's go. Look with me again at verses 10 through 11 and see what Peter says here. It says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We see here first the prophet's problem. The prophet's problem. Like spiritual detectives, like ancient virgins of Sherlock Holmes, the prophets were searching intently with greatest care. You see that verse 10. They were making inquiries. They were trying to solve the mystery based on the clues. They were trying to put all the pieces together. What pieces? Verse 11. They're trying to figure out what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They're trying, the prophets are trying to reconcile seemingly conflicting bits of information about the Messiah. How can he be the universal king and yet be the one that the world rejects? How can that be? How can his reign be endless and yet he's the one who dies for his people? How can this Messiah be the one who heals the broken bits of the world and yet he himself is broken and marred beyond all recognition? The prophets had the clues, but often it only led them to more questions than they had answers. They had the pieces, but they didn't know how they all fit together. Part of the prophet's problem was due to the prophet's perspective. Take your hand out now if you have it. Look, look at your little, little, little drawing there. Oh, it's on the screen as well if you don't have it. Um, Colby, you may need your bifocals looking at this. It's small print, sorry. Sorry for that. But look at it. Let's use Isaiah as a test case and a good example of what Peter is talking about. Here's what's going on, Peter says. The Holy Spirit, whom Peter calls the Spirit of Christ, gives Isaiah glimpses and clues of what's coming. And like a detective, Isaiah tries to put all the pieces together, all the clues, not fully seeing how they all fit. Isaiah knows that the Messiah will be God with us. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. But Isaiah also knows that this one will be a child born to us, a son given to us. Isaiah knows that the Messiah will be God's king forever, sitting upon David's throne forever. But he also knows that he is a sacrifice. He dies. How how do these things fit together? Part of Isaiah's problem is his perspective. And I've tried to illustrate that for you on the handout you have there. Uh, Here's a way to visualize what is going on. Have you ever had this experience? Approaching a mountain range. Maybe you've been to the Rockies. Approaching a mountain range, you know that there are the foothills that come first. And then behind the foothills are even taller mountains. And then behind those are even, those are the big peaks behind those. 
But as you approach the mountain range, you stand at a point where all these peaks blend together. They all appear like one mountain, even though there are valleys between them that you cannot see. Folks, this is the prophet's perspective. This is how he sees the future. He sees all the truths about the Messiah, but they're all merged together. Not seeing the valleys of time that are in between them. Not seeing a first coming to deal with sin and a second coming to renew the world and reign forever. For example, in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign. Ask me for a sign. King says, no. God says, I'm gonna give you a sign anyway. Ahaz, tell you what, the virgin will be with child and she will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Isaiah speaks a word from God that contains some near fulfillment. Like the foothills directly in front of him, there is a foothill fulfillment to that promise. To that prophecy, there is a child who is born who brings about the salvation before he grows up. Salvation from Judah's enemies happens before that child knows right from wrong. That happens. But Isaiah sees a greater fulfillment to this word as well. He also sees the mountains behind the foothills. He knows also that unto us a child will be born unto us a son will be given and the government shall sit upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. This one is to be God who lives with us. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah knows this. He sees a greater fulfillment coming in Jesus. But in the same vision, he also sees the climactic fulfillment. It's not just this is a child born to us, but also this one will sit upon David's throne forever. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. Isaiah sees the climactic fulfillment, the last and highest mountain merged together with all these promises. And so you see it, all the mountain peaks, the near fulfillment, the greater fulfillment, the climactic fulfillment, All these peaks merge into one from the prophet's perspective. And so, Peter says, they're trying to figure it out. Bless their hearts. They're just trying to figure it out. The prophets are trying to put together the mystery. And try as they might, they never manage to put all the pieces together. Because God is, is a God who delights to fulfill his word in a surprising way that no one saw coming. Brothers and sisters, there's still prophecy about the future. And I think that still holds true. God delights to fulfill his word in a surprising way that none of our charts, nothing had it on it, right? This This is our God. And when we look back, we say, oh, of course, of course, that's the way it is. The prophets couldn't solve the mystery, but they did come to this conclusion. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. This is is their conclusion they came to. If the prophets had a big reveal at the end of all their detective work, here it is. 
it was revealed to them that their real work was actually serving you. Alberta Baptist Church, 2020, serving you. Their real life's work was serving a future generation that they would never live to see. Their work was for us. For our encouragement is why they wrote. Not for their own generation, but for us, for our faith. The prophets served us by providing foretaste and categories for us to understand the gospel message. Verse 12, again, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. The prophets knew that they wrote to serve future generations by giving us pieces of the gospel mystery in advance. They faithfully gave us the pieces revealed to them, even when they couldn't figure out how God could possibly fit them all together. And that, isn't that just a testimony to the truth of it as well? Here's what God revealed. And I, this seems contradictory to me, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway, future generation. See what you can do with it. And God amazingly in his wisdom puts all the pieces together perfectly. Even when they couldn't figure out how it could possibly all fit together. Peter says the prophets, when they couldn't figure things out, guess what? They were in good company. Look again, verse 12. The angels also long to look into these things and figure them out. Verse 12, these are things into which angels long to look. Think about angels. Angels who are ancient beings, far more clever than Sherlock Holmes, right? They were trying to figure out what is going on. They're trying to put the pieces together of what God is doing. And I'll tell you this, by way of application, if the gospel is a thing of wonder to angels, it should be a thing of wonder to you as well, right? If angels can't plumb the depths of God's mysterious salvation plan from their perspective in heaven, you never will on earth. And that is good news. That's amazing. A lifetime of reflecting on the gospel will still find new wonders to behold and have your heart changed by. That's why you never outgrow your need for the gospel. And that's why you will never need more than the gospel. The angels don't need more. You will never need more than the gospel the gospel. Anytime your sleepy heart wants to yawn at the good news about Jesus, remind yourself, these are things into which angels long to look. The gospel is a revealed mystery that requires a response from us. We see that in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Therefore, Here's the response. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not often that a drama's unfolding mystery requires a response from us, but this one does. But when you think about it, the best mystery authors out there, the best script writers for television 
they do aim to produce a response in their audience. Even if it's only a moment of awe or shock at the big reveal at the end of the story. But the response that God wants from us is far deeper, isn't it? Than just a moment. The response God wants for us is far deeper. His mystery story is meant to impact the whole of our lives. Our minds, what we do with our bodies, our hopes, our behaviors, our character. All of these are reshaped as we respond to the gospel story. And here's what that looks like. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Anyone still reading the King James or the New King James? It has a very particular phrase there, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. What is that? And that's, that's a bit more literal translation. It means prepare your mind for action. But you see the image there, gird up the loins of your mind. You have to put a little background in ancient Near East. Everyone wore long robes, right? You, you, you walked. Even today, it's kind of shameful for a man to run. You walk in your long robes, but there is a time when walking is no longer appropriate. When is that time? It's when there is a battle that is happening. In those moments, what do you do? You take your robe and you wrap it around you and you look like a big man wearing a onesie uh, and you run. If, if, maybe, maybe you're charging into battle, maybe you're running away. You are prepared for action. And that's what Peter says. Prepare your minds for action. The gospel reveals to us a world full of meaning and purpose all around us. We are not the accidental collision of atoms. You're not here by chance, happenstance. We are much more like characters in a story, which Jesus has spoken in the beginning. He's spoken us into existence. We are engaged in a spiritual battle with real and eternal consequences. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Be alert. Be alert, church. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Our bodies and desires, we are to keep under control. We're to keep sober. We're not to live like those who indulge in their every desire and let their appetites control them. Why? Because... The gospel says we are much more than our appetites. You are much more than your appetites. And this is in opposition to what the world tells us so often, right? In opposition to the world, the gospel warns us that many of our desires will just be wrong. Just wrong. Just wrong. Many of our desires are actually self-destructive desires. Therefore, we are called not to act on them, but to, not to be intoxicated with them, but to be sober, be self-controlled, be controlled by a superior desire to know and enjoy Jesus. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's mystery story impacts our minds, our bodies, and also our hopes, our hopes. Hope is, just by its nature, future-looking, isn't it? Who hopes for what he already has, right? We don't do that. 
Hope always looks for what is yet to come. And hope is something that can be easily misplaced, so easily misplaced. Many people around us have their hope fixed upon the pleasure of their next vacation, their next holiday, or the rest that they'll finally have in retirement, or the prestige that will come with that big promotion at work. But the gospel overturns all these hopes and replaces them with something much richer and deeper. Verse 13, here's your hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel finally gives us a hope worth having. A hope that sees us through the trials of our today. While everyone else around us is freaking out at the news, we have a hope that cannot disappoint. Because if, we, if you put too much hope in your next holiday, next vacation, guess what? You're gonna be disappointed. It couldn't live under that burden. It wasn't as relaxing or as fun as you thought it would be. It was over far too quickly. Those retirement years you're looking forward to aren't as sweet as you thought they would be now that you have that chronic back pain. That promotion at work doesn't feel worth it now that it came with all those extra responsibilities on your shoulder. These things cannot bear under the weight of our hope, but Christ can, and he will not disappoint. These things are too small to fulfill our hopes, but here we see a hope that will not disappoint us. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Here's another aspect of our lives impacted by the gospel story. Our minds, our bodies, our hopes, but also our behavior, our actions, what we do. There was a time for each of us when our behaviors were shaped by ignorance. Now, uh, my son James, Ella as well, but James particularly has been watching a lot of Andy Griffith this past year and enjoying it. One of his favorite characters is Ernest E. Bass. And Ernest E. Bass comes into Mayberry one day and he needs an education. He says, I'm of no account without, a, without an education. And Andy says, Ernest e., you're not of no account. You're just ignorant right? You're just ignorant. That's, that's the way we are. We come into the world ignorant. We thought we knew what life was about and how to live it, but we were wrong. We were wrong. Our desires were wrong. Kids, most of the kids have left, but kids, if you don't know it, this is your default setting coming into the world. This is why you need parents. This is why you should listen to your parents you don't realize that you enter into the world ignorant, not knowing everything, following destructive desires. And guess what, adults? That is just as true for you. (laughs) Ignorant of the gospel mysteries that should transform our hearts, we all chase after harmful desires instead. But in the gospel, God is intervening into our mess. 
Praise his name. He's intervening into our mess. He has turned on the light, the mystery we were ignorant of, and often we know it and we still act like we're ignorant of. It's now been revealed. It turns out that the prophets were actually serving us. Not simply that we might know more true things, but that our behavior might increasingly reflect the true things that we know. And here is a good summary statement of what that reflection should look like. Look at verse 14 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the intended impact of God's mystery story. That our character might begin to reflect God's character. We are to be holy because he is holy. Now, what does that mean to be holy? What is, what is holiness? It may feel like an ethereal concept out there as you can't quite grasp. What does it mean to be holy? Let me give you the most helpful definition of holiness that I've ever read. The definition that made holiness at the same time something high and exalted, but also something I could grasp mentally. Here's the most helpful quote I ever heard about God's holiness. It came from Thomas Watson, Puritan, lived in the 1600s. He wrote this. He said, God's holiness consists of his perfect love for righteousness and his perfect abhorrence of evil. That's simple, but so profound. I'll say it one more time. God's holiness consists of his perfect love for righteousness and his perfect hatred for evil. To be holy, therefore, like God is holy, involves me loving what God loves like God loves it. It involves me hating what God hates like God hates it. In other words, we will be holy like God is holy when we share the same heart as God. When my affections reflect his affections. When I love purity like God loves purity, when I hate pride like he hates it, my heart is reflecting God's heart. When I love showing mercy like God loves showing mercy, when I hate self-destructive desires like he hates them, my character is reflecting his character. Therefore, to grow in practical holiness, to grow in Christ-likeness is what we all want as disciples of Christ, be more like him. To grow in that is to have my heart increasingly reflect God's heart. To have my affections increasingly reshaped after God's affections. When that happens, my reactions in the world will increasingly reflect the way Jesus would react in the world. My old knee-jerk responses to life start being replaced by new responses as the gospel reshapes my heart. And slowly, so slowly, bit by bit over time, our character begins to change. We become new people as our old desires 
die, not just die, but they're pushed out by new desires, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. Good authors know this. And this is how they think about character development in their stories. At the beginning of a story, they give you some hopeless character like Ebenezer Scrooge. How many people watched the Christmas Carol this, this Christmas? I watched several versions of it. Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, but then Dickens, the author, takes that covetous old sinner on a journey. And his old knee-jerk reactions begin to change as his character is reshaped by the story of what happened to him. You know, I really identify with Scrooge. Like him, I'm a person who's just naturally greedy, but I've also had a surprising encounter like Scrooge with the true meaning of Christmas, with Christ. And my heart is increasingly being won by the lavish generosity of God toward me. So many good things God has poured out in my life, but primarily this, which you share as well, he gave you heaven's best. He gave you his son to die for you. That is the gospel. He being so rich, so lavish in his giving has changed my naturally greedy heart. If this is God's heart toward me, it should be my heart towards others as well. Believing in God's generosity toward me does what rules never could do. If I had a rule, KJ, be a generous person. I may, if I did it, I would begin becoming proud that I did it. But the gospel doesn't give us rules. It gives us what rules can't give us, a new heart, new desires, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. Believing in God's generosity toward me changes my heart and a changed heart naturally leads to changed actions and new responses. And the same is true for you. This is how God will work in your life. You might be a person who is prone to worry, prone to anxiety, but your heart can be increasingly won by a God you can trust to govern all things, even the bad things in your life for your good. And when that happens, like with Scrooge, like with me, your character begins to change. As your heart begins to reflect God's heart, our lives also begin to reflect his holiness. Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. There's one more thing here that's important for you to see, especially if you're here exploring what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you're here just wondering, what does it look like? Was it luck to follow Jesus? Here's something that you must see in this passage. Peter's call to holiness isn't this. Be like God so that God will accept you. Be like God so that God will accept you. That is the path of every other religion in the world. Keep these rules, do these things, and you will have God's approval. It is transactional. It's a transactional religion. And it's our default way of being religious. I obey and in return, I'm accepted. While this is our default way of seeing the world, it's the default way most religious people in the world think, thank God, it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Peter doesn't say, be like God so that God will accept you. Instead, he says, God has called you to himself. 
He has accepted you through Jesus. Therefore, be holy like him. Here's the all important difference. The gospel says God has already made you holy by uniting you to Christ through faith. Now, Peter says, go and live like who you are. You are holy. You are sons of God. Go and live like who you are. Go and live lives of holiness in joyful overflow of what God has done. This is your proper response. This is the impact the gospel should be having on your heart. If you're not a Christian yet here, this is what you need to hear most. If you are a Christian already, you need to be reminded of this as well. Why? Because we are monumental forgetters, aren't we, Keith Pugh? We are monumental forgetters. We so quickly forget and go back to our old ways of thinking, transactional religion with God. I see myself through my performance instead of seeing myself completely through the performance of another, of Christ. The gospel is a mystery story that impacts our real everyday lives. Let's see that increasingly be the case as we work out this mystery together in the context of Christian community who applies the gospel to all of life. As 2019 has come to a close and 2020 begins, let's pray and ask God to give us a Sherlock Holmes-like knack for applying this gospel mystery to ourselves first and to others around us. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that the gospel, the word about Christ might richly dwell in our hearts. It was a mystery, long veiled, but it has now been revealed through the coming of Christ. Lord, may, may we rejoice that we stand on this side of the mystery. And may our hearts and our lives, our actions, what we do with our bodies, our minds be continually reshaped by it. Lord, we, we are mindful that we are long-term renovation projects. None of us, none of us will reach the end saying we have made it and we are complete. Lord, may we continually be reshaped by this gospel until this mortal takes upon itself immortality, until we behold Christ as he is and are changed into his likeness. So Lord, now set our feet upon a journey. Give us strength and courage for this journey of day by day coming to the well again and drinking deeply of this gospel mystery and being changed by it. May we be mindful that these are things into which angels long to look And may we never grow tired of looking into them as well. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.